Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. And my guest today is Aaron L. Thompson, Associate Professor at John Jay College, City University of New York. We're going to be discussing her new paper, Official Fakes, the Consequences of Governmental Treatment of Forced Antiquities as Genuine During Seizures, Prosecutions, and Repatriations. So welcome, Erin. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So um, I wanted to start, uh, as usual, by taking a look at the title and just asking the obvious question, which is, what is an official fake and how does it relate to the work that you do on antiquities and their treatment under the law? So I got into the relationship between law and antiquities by thinking about how can we stop the looting of archaeological sites and the smuggling of antiquities from their countries of origin into the, the collections of wealthy collectors But along the way, I got really interested in the issue of fake antiquities, mainly because it's funny uh, and interesting. Uh, And for a while, I thought of it just like this, like, oh, haha, these are funny stories of of people spending a whole lot of money on fakes. It really doesn't have anything to do with protecting genuine antiquities. And that's the attitude of most people in this field. Uh, My favorite metaphor along this this strand is uh, one scholar that said that fake art uh, are, are like STDs. It's the punishment for excessive desire and lack of judgment. Uh, <laughs> so it's, it's your problem if you buy a fake. But I started to think about, well, is this really true? Um, when there was a case in the Manhattan DA's office of a collector of ancient coins who was recorded by an undercover officer posing as a buyer, boasting about how he was selling looted coins from Greece. And this was a big case in the news. This guy was not only a collector, but a prominent physician. And the DA's office was prosecuting this as a sort of almost like a a showcase uh, to to tell collectors don't buy looted things. And then months and months later, after he was arrested, um, the DA's office said, well, we're we're, um, uh, accepting a plea agreement to a community service, essentially, uh, instead of the severe penalties we had been seeking because we tested the coins and it turns out that they're fake. Um, These were extremely valuable coins. He was trying to sell them for hundreds of thousands of dollars, but it turns out they were forged, um, and it could only be determined by an electron scanning microscope. And uh, I I started to wonder, like, this must be true in a lot of cases. And I started to research and indeed found many cases where um, authorities had seized antiquities, had arrested people, had started to prosecute people, had even repatriated in fancy ceremonies objects that turned out to be forgeries, not genuine antiquities. So this is the category of objects I decided to call, quote unquote, official fakes, um, because they are fake antiquities, but instead of being disregarded, people spend a lot of time and money uh, trying to treat them like genuine antiquities. How, how, how common are official fakes? Like, how frequent is it that people 
buy or trade in antiquities that they believe to be genuine, but turn out ultimately not to be. Well, on one level, that's, of course, an impossible question to answer. Um, but on another level, it can be estimated. Uh, I would say my most definite answer is that it's a surprisingly high percentage of antiquities for sale are either fake or so heavily restored or pastiche together out of pieces of genuine antiquities that they might as well. Um, uh, Thomas Hoving, the former director of the Met, estimated that about 40% of the art he had seen in the museum's collections and on the market was fake. And that's a pretty high level of um, quality he was looking at, not just like eBay, et cetera. So I actually try and persuade people not to buy antiquities, uh, not so much by telling them that you're probably buying a looted antiquity that helped fund a conflict, but by saying you're just being totally fooled by a fake. Um, and I was able to find a fair number of cases in which it became obvious that uh, an antiquity in an official government process was fake. Uh, but I'm sh beyond certain that there are many, many other examples uh, where it just was sort of never spotted. Because who has the, the motivation to point out that these things are fakes? Uh, it was almost um, sort of shamefacedly that scholars would sort of tweet to one another about, oh, this is a ridiculous fake. Um, because you don't want to discourage repatriation or discourage governments paying attention to the problem of looting. But sometimes it's hard to resist. Um, there's one very publicized handover from the U.S. government to um, the Iraq uh, government, the Iraqi government of um, antiquities seized during a raid in an ISIS leader's house in Syria. Um, and among perfectly genuine coins and et cetera, there's a, a tiny little statue sitting on the table and this big press conference and someone uh, on Twitter pointed out, well, look, that's a, a tourist tchotchke uh, replica of the bust of Nefertiti. So that is definitely not a genuine antiquity that you are solemnly handing over to these Iraqi curators as like, look, I've given you back your cultural heritage. Aren't I wonderful? Well, you know, there is a certain element of cultural heritage to tourist tchotchkes as well, I guess, but probably not the sort that we're interested in celebrating in the same way. Um, why can't people tell? I mean, why would anyone buy a fake antiquity? I mean, why can't they look at the stuff and realize? I mean, these are sophisticated people, collectors, curators, museums, etc. How does this happen? Oh, you would be surprised at how few questions people ask because the incentives are all aligned to move fast and not ask questions. Um, first of all, there are large categories of ancient objects that simply can't be tested for their authenticity. Stone is old. It's old in the quarry. It's old in the statue. We don't have any reliable scientific means of telling when the stone statue is carved. Keep that in mind the next time you go to a museum and realize that the entire Greco-Roman galleries are stone statues and not, say, wood, uh, which could be dated, or um, uh, metal, which can the alloys can be analyzed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so some things can't just, we, we don't know unless we find them in archaeological excavations. 
Other things can be tested, but it's expensive. Uh, so who's going to pay $2,500 to test an antiquity that they bought for $1,000? Nobody. Um, and then other things, people just don't ask questions. Um, since antiquity selling began, um, actually, dealers have been very good at discouraging buyers from asking questions. I wrote a book called Possession, the Curious History of Private Collectors about the private collecting of, of Greek and Roman antiquities. And there's all these great, even 18th century letters between British collectors and dealers of, of Roman antiquities saying like, you gotta move quick uh, or else this is gonna go away. So there's not time for testing. And this results in ridiculous things, not just by the way in antiquities, um, the Nodler Gallery case of a few years ago where a gallery in New York was selling fake uh, modern art resulted in, in a, a, a number of ridiculous purchases, like people who paid multi-million dollars for a Jackson Pollock painting in which the name Pollock was misspelled in the signature. Um, so <laughs> people don't look very closely. Uh, and this, in some ways, I think, great, buy forgeries and, and don't worry about looting. But on the other hand, the, the very same lack of documentation, lack of questions, allow for both looted objects and forged objects to end up on the marketplace. Right. So in your, in your paper, you sort of get into some of the unanticipated problems that seem to arise as a consequence of the surprising prevalence of these unrecognized, unrecognized fake antiquities. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what some of those consequences are and, and why you think they're, they're such a problem. Well, I, I wrote this paper really to try and make more lawyers and, and legal scholars think this was a cool area of, <laughs> of questions to ask, um, because I think there are a number of different ways in which policy could change that could um, help us decrease the number of looted antiquities on the market. So one thing that I'm asking in the paper is, well, what should be our reaction to the idea that there are looted antiquities uh, in the, the uh, official government processes? Should we really decrease the level of charges for someone who's selling uh, an antiquity thinking that it's looted, but it turns out that it's just a fake? Um, should we penalize the selling of fakes or would that have an impossible to realize distinction in there between what's a fake, what's a replica, what's a tribute, what's a tourist tchotchke, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think the question is also interesting in terms of repatriation. So, there have been a number of cases in which some ridiculously fake object is handed over to another country. Is that something that scholars should say is ridiculous? Or do we realize that repatriations are political acts, uh, which often have very little to do with the art? So, so how, how are people punished in the context of the trade in antiquities. I mean, what happens uh, is is the 
prosecution or the actual punishment different? And if so, is it different because of the law or just because it's embarrassing for prosecutors to pursue people for having been swindled? Again, a question that's hard to answer. One, because it differs around the world. So in some jurisdictions, making fakes is itself illegal, but in very, very few jurisdictions because of this problem of how do you differentiate between copying for other purposes versus forgery. Mm. Uh, in the US, forging an artwork is not itself an illegal act. It's the, uh, all the other stuff you do around the forgery, the creating fake documents to try and show that a painting is real, uh, making fraudulent statements when selling it. Uh, Often forgers get busted on things like not paying taxes because if you're unscrupulous enough to be making fake art, you're probably not rigorously filing your taxes. Um, so that's sort of how we've treated it, just dropping entirely the problem of forgery for um, prosecuting related acts. Um, and I think this isn't good enough for antiquities. Um, because what has been happening is just people get an object confiscated and then are free to, to try again. There's not, uh, I couldn't find any cases of criminal penalties in the U.S. being applied. It's just sort of a gamble that you take. Huh. Huh. So, um, wow. So that's really, that, that's kind of funny and, and weird. Um, but why is me? One thing I think is, is really worth touching on is why is it that it's not illegal to make fake antiquities? I mean, how can that be, right? What's the, what's, <laughs> why would we allow people to do that? Which I think is a great question um, because of the things you can do with fake antiquities. Uh, so not only can you sell them and make a profit yourself, uh, but I think the uh, the biggest problem with fake antiquities is that the government ends up paying for them, essentially, because many people donate their antiquities to museums and take a tax deduction. And if you're getting a tax deduction for donating something that is worthless, that doesn't seem right to me. Um, and there was an entire museum in California that did an audit of its collections a couple of years ago and discovered something like... 70 plus percent of its antiquities collection were fake. Uh, so it should not have been giving those hundreds of thousands of dollars of valuations um, for its donors. And again, if you look at the incentives, what incentive is there for a museum to say, don't give us this fake? Maybe if that's the only thing that the donor is, is seeking to give, but in cases where it's a donor who's saying, here's a lot of money plus ridiculous fakes, or here's some genuine antiquities plus some ridiculous fakes, there's no reason that for the museum to say, oh, ho, ho, you've been fooled. Uh, the museum is going to say, thanks, here's a valuation along the lines that you want, and we'll be putting this in the basement. Wow. Uh, so, or sometimes I think we'll be putting it on display and maybe taking it down after you die. Uh, but in the meantime, this fake is, is falsely educating lots of students, members of the public, is infecting scholarship to sound overdramatic, um, but is, is causing a lot of um, problems with tax deductions. Um, I've written another paper in the past, my most 
boringly wonky paper uh, arguing that the IRS should value at zero unprovenanced antiquities uh, in order to um, not incentivize the purchasing of looted antiquities that are more rightfully owned by another country. And I think this is along the same lines, that we want to encourage the donation to museums only of things that belong in the museums, namely legally owned, genuine artifacts. Are there legitimate reasons for creating fake antiquities as well? Or is the entire market or the entire kind of production of these kinds of objects just totally illegitimate uh, in its entirety? I think there are um, genuine reasons for creating um, uh, copies, appreciations of antiquities, uh, namely to fill a desire that people genuinely have for being connected with the past and to do so in a way that doesn't encourage the purchase of looted antiquities. So if you wanna touch something, you wanna decorate your home with something, let that thing be a reproduction um, rather than something that, that was dug out of the ground. Uh, I think, for example, 3D, 3D printing technology has really interesting ramifications for filling people's desire to be connected with the past without uh, doing so in a way that destroys the past. Yeah, so one thing that was interesting to me in your paper as well is the way you kind of in Engage a little bit on an angle with the traditional ways that people talk about the illicit trade in antiquities and how we as scholars and how law enforcement should should approach it. Um, I was wondering if you could just like amplify that a little bit because I thought your sort of perspective there was was interesting and I like the way you use this kind of market and fake antiquities and collectors' concern for their pocketbooks as a way of thinking about engaging with and hopefully reducing this kind of illegal activity. Engaging on an angle sounds like a summary for all of my scholarly Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm coming from this very weird perspective. I have a PhD in art history and a JD, which is a little bit ridiculous, <laughs> too much school. Um, but I'm trying to use that perspective to come up with more realistic ways of solving problems. Um, archaeologists have been worried about the looting of antiquities for 40 plus years and for 40 plus years have been wagging their fingers at collectors and saying, don't buy looted antiquities. And this has had no effect, essentially. Um, so I'm trying to think about incentives. Um, what are the carrots you can use or the sticks that people actually want to avoid for their own sake rather than just um, sort of concealing their activity? Because if you outlaw things that people want to do, people will find a way to do those things. Uh, you have to find different ways to make those things less attractive or to make other things more attractive. And that's what I'm trying to do. And, and so other than some of the tax-based approaches you've suggested, which I think um, are actually great and might actually have a really significant effect given that even after the recent tax changes, I think for sort of the high income uh, taxpayers, these kinds of deduction related uh, issues are still pretty salient. Are there other ways you think the government could intervene in this market or maybe academics or kind of 
people in the museum community could engage in this market and make kind of policy changes that might create the kinds of incentives you're talking about? I think people should talk more about how many fakes are on the marketplace. It's a little bit mysterious to me that people downplay this. Fakes are discussed in a couple of scholarly blogs on Twitter, but not out in the open. It's especially ridiculous to me that law enforcement would drop cases or would depublicize cases where the antiquities are revealed to be fakes. Because I understand you might as law enforcement think, oh, we just wasted our, our prosecutorial time on something that's not a real antiquity. But what you should really be doing is saying, ha, 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 look, this collector spent so much money on something that turns out to be worthless. Hey, other collectors, don't do that. You know, stay out of this market. Uh, I'm a little bit worried because that sounds kind of like I'm advocating public shaming, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think you have to make a, a social impact. You have to change the idea of what people think that they're doing when they're buying um, something that looks like an antiquity. Right. So that, and that sounds like a way of changing the narrative from a law enforcement perspective and effectively to say, you know, the way you can stamp out this trade is actually by hitting people in their pride and also explaining to them how likely they are to be fleeced because, you know, so many people think they're so astute and don't realize how easy it is for them to actually be be fooled. It, it seems like there's a different set of incentives for people from the museum, gallery, auction house perspective who are benefiting like in not directly but at least obliquely from the trade in fake antiquities and do you see any ways of engaging or changing the incentives for for those groups exactly and that's the real hard incentives to change um because if you're an auction house if you turn something away as a fake you don't make any money off of it. If you sell something that's very obviously a fake, then you get made fun of, your reputation goes down. But so many things are in this in-between zone where it's, um, it, you can't ever really tell if this is a, a fake or not. And the same thing with a museum, as we already discussed, you have this incentive to keep your donors happy. Uh, in the paper, I proposed that museum, that, that tax deductions um, should only be granted if um, an antiquity is assessed by uh, an appraiser who's independent of either the, the curator or the donor, um, which I think would be a way for museums to gracefully decline an acquisition. Nobody wants to say, I think this thing is a fake, get it out of here. But it's much easier to say, oh, dear, stupid other appraiser won't let the government give you money. It's all their fault. I'm so sorry, but please give me my, your, your other money and, and things because you won't be able to donate this to any museum. Yeah. Um, for auction houses, that's, that's difficult. Uh, I'm not really sure what to do. <laughs> okay, okay. So one of the things I loved about the paper that we haven't yet quite gotten to are all the fantastic stories that you tell in it. And you did mention a few, but I was wondering if you could like just share with my listeners your your favorite story or a particularly juicy one, just because they're there's it's so delightful to hear about really, really wealthy people who are <laughs> so full of themselves getting burned. 
or people who should just know better. I think my story, favorite story is the goat pen core, where the, the um, Greek police arrested a couple of guys, dug up a, an ancient statue from a goat pen. Uh, a core statue is just a, this name for a maiden statue, um, a, an ancient Athenian beautiful woman uh, and held all these press conferences. We're busting the antiquities, smuggling trade until uh, the, the story suddenly disappeared, which is probably because, uh, as was pointed out across the archaeological Twitter sphere, um, what they were showing was an exact copy of um, the Peplos Core, which is in every Art 101 textbook. It's in the Acropolis Museum in Athens. So um, it would be kind of like um, the, the, a SWAT team descending on an Italian restaurant and saying, you're an art smuggler. Look, you got Michelangelo's David. In, <laughs> in, in, it's, it's, a, it's a tourist copy. So God only knows why this plaster cast ended up buried in a goat pen. Maybe they were trying to sell it as a forgery or to someone even stupider, but uh, who knows? It's just, I think police need to work more closely with archaeologists to not have these sort of embarrassing claims for authenticity of things that are obviously hobbies. Yeah, wow, that's that's amazing. Well, thanks so much, Erin. This has been a great conversation. Um, I love the paper. Uh, I recommend everyone check it out because there's a ton more stuff in it worth worth chewing over. Uh, I was just wondering, is there anything you want to leave people with? Any, any last thoughts about the antiquities trade or about, about your paper, about, you know, things you think people should be aware of? I am more interested in people's thoughts. So if you read the paper and have any thoughts about other ways to go about these problems, please get in contact with me. I'm um, at John J. College or at Art Crime Prof on Twitter. Awesome. Thank you so much, Aaron. Thank you. Thank you.